Good morning. Thank you so much, Eric and Troy, for blessing us with words from Dorsey and Margaret DeRoe on the day. It's good to be here to Dean Steele. Thank you, Dr. Gregory, and to see Dr. Garland and Matt Snowden. And I'm calling another name, so if I need help through the sermon, they can come to the rescue. It's good to be here on this Lord's Day and to be in celebration as we celebrate with the black seminarians here at Truett Seminary. Luke 4 has been read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed be free, the Lord of liberty. James Weldon Johnson received an invitation from his high school in Jacksonville, Florida to be the speaker to the senior class in preparation to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday. He took his pen and began to work through some notes to write a speech to the high school. He quickly changed directions and his speech turned into a piece of poetry. And then he thought he would do something with that poetry. He handed it to his brother and his brother assigned music to it. And to his delight, when he went home, 500 young people raised their voices and sang, lift every voice and sing. To earth and heaven rings, rings with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicings rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound as loud as the rolling seas. It's an anthem that begins in praise. James Abington teaches at Emory University at Candler School of Theology. He's been a guest on our campus on a couple of times during our Alleluia Chorus. He was being interviewed about this hymn on an occasion when he taught it to 1,000 voices, a rainbow coalition of people, Anglo-Americans, African-Americans, Koreans, Jews, Arabs, and it was being taught during the time of the Gulf War, according to his interview. He said when he taught the song, it was not met with resistance, but initially people didn't see the sense of them having to sing this piece of literature. At the end, he was approached by a group that said to him, this hymn belongs not just to African-Americans, does it? Almost startling, they said, but anyone who is true to their God and true to their native land. I wish more people would sing it on more occasions than just February. It's a wonderful piece of music to sing, a great piece for the church to join in. In January of last year, an all-male white choir 
saying this at the inauguration for the second term of the mayor at the city of Houston. Probably the most arresting singing was at a group of Baptist women. I must admit that when I walked into that room, my heart sank. It seemed like such a sad service initially. And one of the ladies stood and they began to sing, lift every voice and sing to earth and heaven rings. And that was a kind of light of hope that broke through that worship service. Jesus hadn't read Johnson's words, but he seems to embody them when he is about to return home to preach his initial sermon in his home church. There's a kind of uniting of heaven and earth, like this anthem that does not begin in a dark despair, but in bright hope, not in bitterness, but in sweetness, not in despair, but in hope, not in a minor key, but a major key. And Jesus seemed to have done that in an embodied way in which he brought heaven and earth together. And he's going home to do work at the home church. It happens after he had had a rendezvous with evil in the wilderness. He had registered himself in prayer to God and now he's been tempted and he comes out of this wilderness and he's being led home. And when he gets home, as the custom would be, there was nobody who had liturgically selected what would be read that day or who would stand up and proclaim the message for that morning. It was open to whoever had, uh, I guess, the opportunity to do it. And maybe this was his moment he felt like Jesus did. And something happens at that very moment. He takes the scroll and he reads from Isaiah. And at that very moment, you pick up when you read this. Casual readers, pick it up, whether they phrase it this way or not, that liberty begins in the house of God. That there's something free that takes place when people get to God's house. This is the Father's house, and he is at home with God the Father, and now he is at worship, and there's liberty that takes place in this house. I'm a pastor, that's where I do my work. And every week and month and year, the battle intensifies over somebody questioning whether you need to, in quotes, go to church. My mind immediately went back to 1977 in Carpet College Chapel on the campus of Bishop College. The dean of the chapel He's a wonderful man who lives now as an octogenarian in South Carolina. His name is Harry S. Wright. And Dean Wright stood up one Friday in convocation and said that he was approached by a lovely young lady, a student of our college, and asked him, Dean, do I have to go to church? 
And that morning, he took that question and assigned it to one of the Sabbath passages in the Old Testament and called it a day for us. And he said, she asked me, do I have to go to church? And he said, I told her, no, you don't have to go. You don't no, need to go, no. Ought go, no. But you ought to want to go. When you think of the God of creation and God's coming to us and breaking in history through Jesus Christ and giving his life on the cross and resurrecting for your salvation and your reconciliation to him, that ought to be enough for you to say, I don't have to go to church, no. Need to go, ought to go, no. But ought to want to go. And Jesus must have been motivated, I think, by something like that, that it was his custom. He had been brought up that way. And so he goes back to the place where liberty has always begun. It's something liberating about going into God's house. I was listening, and I didn't want to get too distracted listening to precious Lord take my hand. And I thought about the verse, at the river, Lord, I stand, guide my feet, hold my hand. And I thought of those words in light of the pandemic that we're in and how many people have lost loved ones to death. They have succumbed to death. And to be reminded today in chapel, in church, that God can meet us at the river and cross us over. That's liberation that takes place in God's house. But that's not all you find there. There's liberation that sounds from God's book. Jesus didn't stand up and just start reciting something that came off the top of his head. The living word began to read the written word. And he reaches back not to and to deal with the liberality of the scribes or the high rationality of the Sadducees or the fundamentalism of the Pharisees, but he picks up the scriptures because in it liberation comes from God's book. And he reads from that book to the people that are there in that church service on that day. And they are hearing the prophet speak and he's reminding them that from this book that the scripture will be fulfilled. In fact, when he declares that it is fulfilled in your hearing, those words uh, at a distance doesn't mean very much to many people. But can you imagine that day Jesus standing up, taking an 800-year-old document, reading it to the people, and saying to them in essence, and I am the fulfillment of what I'm reading about. Now, if I tried that, especially in this space, some of you would say, uh, we need to get Wes, he's bumped his head. <laughs> it wasn't much difference that day when Jesus stood up and read that and said, in me now the scripture is fulfilled. 
All the institutions and their shadows, they were pointing to me. The prophetic predictions were pointing toward me. Ceremonial unfoldings were looking at me. I am that now. And you don't have to look for it any further. And that's why I hold to this book. Oh, I, I know at times that when I preach from this book, there are people that will under their breath say, old time preaching. I don't know any other way of doing it, but I can tell you this much about this book. It's not just words on page, it's living word, it's breathing word, it's viable words. And those that engage it, they encounter living word. There's power in that word. In the African-American church experience, that's almost a cue for people to yell, amen. It is. Power in that word. You, you hear it because this book is not just words on page. There's a documentary that was released that Henry Louis Gates did on the black church and in segments, the second segment, in my estimation, this is Ralph West speaking, failed to fulfill the beautiful and rich intent of the African-American church experience. It turned the black church into being misogynistic and hate-mongering and dismissive of people. And I said to my congregation, I don't know that church. The church that I know of is a church that is filled with liberation and preaches from a book of liberation. It's something that is alive and welcoming when you read this book. And it's living and things happen when people engaged it. That's what happened, unfortunately. After 17 years of grueling missionary work in the Democratic Congo, Dr. William Leslie, a pharmacist and a medical missionary, had worked tirelessly, tirelessly. And after coming to some sharp tension with one of the leaders in the Congo, he went back to America depleted and despondent, vocationally discouraged, ministerially doubtful about everything that he had done. And nine years after return, he died. 84 years later, Eric Ramsey, along with World Ministries, would fly over to the same spot. And they were looking for nothing. And after retracing Leslie's steps through the jungles and across the rivers and up the mountains, in his words, like glistening diamonds, in a dense forest, we found churches, not just churches, hundreds of churches. And one church that we found sat 1,000 people in the 1980s, and then that church began to plant churches. No one had been to seminary, divinity school, Bible college. All that had been left was a Bible, not even in that language, but in France. And this Leslie, Dr. Leslie, taught the children how to read the Bible the French Bible. And somebody, I don't know who, where, they took that Bible and began to read the Bible stories. And as a result, 
God began converting, birthing churches and meeting needs of people. There's liberty in God's house. There's liberty in God's book. But there's liberty that is actually from the heart of God. Jesus now is going to, on that day, speak of his person and his ministry. The spirit of the Lord has come upon him, and these are not new words to him. You follow his ministry, and you see how this has gone to work. In Mark, the heavens split open. In Luke, there's this bodily form of the Holy Spirit and a dove, and then there's this voice that speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Holy Spirit at baptism, Holy Spirit at his birth, Holy Spirit now at the proclamation on his first day of preaching. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me speaking of he has been empowered by God to be a herald of the good news that only God can give to people who are broken and marginalized and those who have been fragmented by life. Now he stands up and reads this beautiful text in the hearing of the people. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he gives some insight into the preferential interests of God. That God is interested in the poor. Not just the spiritually poor, but even the economically poor. In the Old Testament, this would be more religious than economical. And now Jesus fulfills it and said, God is interested in the poor, the broken, the marginalized, the have-nots. And look where he does his work. Not to the haves, but to the have-nots. To the poor. Howard Thurman writes a little book and he calls it Jesus and the Disinherited. And he says one reason that Jesus was able to identify with these different types of people is because he himself came from the ghettos. And so he was able to recognize the hurt in human beings. He would even sound this in his great sermon on the mount, and then later in this writing, the Sermon on the Plain, he would remind them, blessed are the poor. The spiritually poor, the morally bankrupt, and those that have been abused by life, blessed are they. Hmm. What a word for us to remember that we could take that same gospel to people who are in the margins and say that God has now called us to proclaim good news to those people who are poor. That's one way that we could apply this, is to say, where can we go to take this message to people who are broken and who need to be mended? But his interest is not just in the poor, it's also in the captives. Now the people who heard this, they had some Old Testament insight of how this champion, the Lord champion, would come in and would vindicate and rescue those who were captive. And now Jesus comes on and again expands upon it and says, but I will set free anyone who is held captive, not just the physical captive, but those who are psychologically, emotionally, those that are abused. 
set the captives free. And he's able to do it. That's why I go to church. Because every week I need to be set free. And when I hear from God's book, from God's message, I know something about being set, set free. He sets the captives free. I, I need to sit down now. Is that about that time? Sit down. I'm looking at this clock here. <laughs> yeah. But to set the captives free. I know why the caged bird sings. Ah, oh, me. When his wing is bruised and bosom sore, when he beats his bars and would be free, it's not a carol of joy or glee, but it's a prayer he sends upward from his heart's deep core, a plea that he flings to heaven. I know why the caged bird sings. The captives to be set free. And that is a message I believe that people need to hear on Sunday morning. It is a message that when people come to this chapel, they need to hear of people who need to be set free. There are some people who need to be set free just from some of the just life's restraints that's on. Some people need to remind it that they can be who God is calling them to be in him. Not everybody comes from a background where folk says, you can be somebody. In my tradition, James Brown's said loud, I'm black and I'm proud, was just as much gospel as amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Because every now and then we had to be reminded of that rift. I am somebody. Black and poor, but I am somebody. Freedom, people. That's what church is. People come now to get free. But there's one last thing, and that is this treatment that God has, not just for the poor and the captive. He talks about even the blind, that is, those that need to see, not just need to see physically, but those that need insight for life. Gardner Calvin Taylor preached a sermon on the life of Bartimaeus from Mark chapter 10, and in it he said, Bartimaeus cried out, Lord, that I might see. And Dr. Taylor said, what did he need to see? He said he needed to see himself. And he needed to see his sin. But most of all, he needed to see a savior. And that's what you find when you come and hear God's word at God's house. Uh, God can set his people free. I'm done now. But it's liberty. In God's house, God's book from the heart of God, in the summation of his ministry in those particulars, he began to say to us, and I am interested in the poor and the captive, the blind, and I sit down, and the oppressed. And the oppressed. I started my religious studies in 1977, and at that time, about eight years in, or eight years later, uh, from the writing of Cone's Black Theology, Black Power. 
I remember we had the little red book they gave to us and we read that in school. And then in Dean Wright, the same one that talked about you don't have to, you ought to want to go to church. He had the little blue and black book. That's how they described Cone's books, the spiritual and the blues. And even then, Cone was hinting to his, his book, what he describes as his knockout punch book. He says he was getting ready to start talking about the God of the oppressed. I like that. Because God of the oppressed is not just God for any one particular people, but for anybody that's oppressed. That God in Jesus Christ breaks into human history and comes to us where we are and lifts us to where we ought to be. I like that. No wonder Jesus in that sermon said, and that's my sermon, and I'm proclaiming the favor of the Lord today. Again, we need help when we read this, but those people say, did he just make a reference to Leviticus and the Jubilee? Or was he talking about Isaiah and setting the captives free? That, that was a time after a person had been enslaved and worked that after so many years they would be set free. Goods would be returned to them. A kind of spiritual reparation, you say. And for them, it was a physical reparation. Things would be given back to them. They had worked, and now they would be repaid. And on this particular day, Jesus says, I'm coming to give you something that's been taken away from you. I'm going to give life to you real life and that's why I have come the writer of Luke would go on to say about this to seek and to save that which was lost that's why I've come to give you life and to give you life as the other evangelists would say to give it to you abundantly no wonder Johnson began that anthem by reminding us, lift every voice and sing. Till earth and heaven rings, rings with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea.